Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 125. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have a special guest with me. His name is Pastor Mark Robinson. He's an accomplished classical and jazz pianist. He minored in music at Bob Jones University, where he earned his BA and MA in religion. His MDiv was at Westminster Theological Seminary. He currently resides in Pittsburgh. He's a PCA teaching elder, currently serving as part-time high school and Bible teacher, adjunct theology instructor, regular pulpit supply, and sometimes he contributes to evangelical and reformed blogs, as well as going to be a speaker at our upcoming symposium in 2021. Pastor Mark, thanks for being on the program today. Oh, good to be here. The reason why we're doing this podcast, uh, Dr. Jones framed the symposium with a question. He says, how should Christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in today's caustic and hostile culture? Like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that businesses, schools, should function during COVID-19. We're divided over how Christians should vote. We're divided over, to some extent, over on issues of sexuality and identity. We're divided over issues of race and social justice. These divisions threaten the charity and unity we knew in the past, which now provoke serious disunity and even expressions of sin, such divisions go deep and threaten the state of biblical orthodoxy for years to come. Pastor Mark, when you look at the scope of broader evangelicalism across the globe, do you think that, that the church is moving forward in a right direction of unity, or do you think that there's much, much, much more work to be done on the issue of race? Excuse me. Oh, the issue of race. Hmm. Uh, there's always, because, you know, this isn't the eschaton, there's always work to be done. So any issue you could mention, any, any issue, since we're still living within a fallen order and the church is, you know, moving toward the, the, the new creation, you have to say yes to any issue. Now, is it as much as uh, the world would lead us to believe or as much as zeitgeisty Christians say it is no hmm. no so I, I the church the church of jesus christ has always been throughout history on the leading edge of bringing social cohesion social reconciliation uh justice you know poverty alleviation all those kinds of things you know it's christians that that have led the way for the most part i mean there are no atheist hospitals right there's right. hospitals where, where christians right. and so race reconciliation those issues the church has always been with not without its foibles of course because it still participates in the and you know we're still in the in, not in the creation yet so that's that's, the, that's a long-winded way of saying um yes there's always room for improvement but not nowhere near what is being uh posited of the church you know, on the church by yeah. the world. Let's define some terms. How would you define yeah. racism? I think theologically, simplest simplest way to define it is sinful partiality based upon ethnicity and race. I put sinful because partiality itself is not wrong. 
you know, Paul says, care about, you should care about those of your own household more than others, else you're an infidel. So there's going to be natural partiality that's demonstrated to some people according to, you know, the order of love. We love some people more than we love others by, by nature, by, you know, by, in accordance with the way it's supposed to be. We love our parents and children and spouses and family more than we love someone we don't know. Um, and that's not so, yeah, that's, that's a very good thing. It's natural. It's the way the world goes on. It, you know, it's just the way societies are built. Um, but sinful partiality would say, you know, because of your ethnicity, because of your racial designation, I will treat you, you know, a certain way. Uh, I, I will not afford you the kind of justice, what is due to you that I would give to other people who are not of your race or ethnicity. So I think, you know, respecter of person, sinful partiality. Um, it's probably the simplest way, I think, theologically to define it. Yeah. Would, when do you think, um, if you could pinpoint, that race, the sin of racism began to creep into, well, let's just deal with the West, the, the Western church. Well, prob well, in terms of its biggest or its most notable manifestation, black and white, right? African diaspora members and European uh, uh, colonialists, whatever. I'd say the colonial period of uh, transatlantic slave trade. And as soon as Europe took, you know, bought slaves from Africa and shipped them over as they came to uh um, colonized the uh, northern hemisphere. The, eventually, what happened was they had to start giving arguments for why there was such a stark distinction between the European colonists and their African slaves. Mm. Right? You had to, you, we always make definitions for social to explain the social hierarchy uh, in accordance with the way we want it or how it's actually operating. Mm -hmm. And so, this is where I think you see some of the. Uh, uh, what are they, biologists? I don't know, 19th century biologists. They start making all these kinds of arguments about size of the brain determines intelligence and capacity. And uh, So I'd say the slave trade kind of drove, I think, our modern Western racial consciousness mm -hmm. and the ways we conceive of race relations and our definitions of racism. It seems to be uh, predicated upon uh, bringing over slaves to, to the new world during the colonial period and times. Mm -hmm. And then, and before then, that, I'm, I'm sorry. No, okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, I don't, I don't think the conceptions were the same. Like when you read about uh, uh, Greco-Roman conceptions of ethnicity and race, it was more uh, a difference between those who uh, were cultured and civilized and versus barbarian. Right. It wasn't color based. Although, you know, we notice color. I mean, we're physical beings. Yeah. But the major differentiations when you read, I'm reading a book by Eileen McCloskey about race and antiquity. And she, she makes the point that the way they uh, explained difference yeah. was on the basis of who, you know, who was capable of civilization and who, who didn't seem to be. So barbarism versus Greek. A Greek was considered civilized and educated, right? And you see it in Plato and Aristotle, the way they arrange social hierarchy and things like that. Right, right. For for things like systemic racism, I, I had been listening to a um, an interview that you were on with 
with uh, three other pastors. And I think you, you filmed it back in June in the RPCNA. I cannot think of the name. But um, it was brought up the issue of systemic racism. And what, what struck me about in that interview was was when systemic racism was talked about, it, the first organization that came up in discussion was not um, America is systemically racist, but the institution of Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, okay. Yes. So what I meant by that is to say, because, you know, the figure I hear is eight or nine out of, eight or nine out of 10 Planned Parenthood clinics or abortuaries or child sacrifice mills is in lower income black or brown communities. So obviously the placement is, is telling you what they're trying to, what they're trying, trying to do. They're, and, and who has the most abortions, right? Black communities, black mm -hmm. women. So that's a system, that's an ecosystem Right. of child sacrifice that is heavily weighted, right, uh, to have the outcome of many, many, many more black women having abortions than non-black women, than, than white women. So I say that's, that's, that's racialized. It's as racialized as any system anyone can point to and say this is, a, this is, racial, this is systemic racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have institutional racism in the sense that, you know, where the laws actually define that race determines a certain right or a certain privilege, right? We don't mm -hmm. have that anymore. We don't have like, you can't own land if you're German or you, right. you know, you can't, you know, like apartheid or whatever, right? You can't go to school if you're a certain tribe or a certain, uh, race. We don't have that, obviously. So in that right. sense, systemic racism. But we have racialized outcomes. Yeah. Uh, th you know, systems that work in such a way that it might, as, it almost might as well be defined by race. Mm -hmm. You know. So I think Planned Parenthood abortions kind of work that way. Yeah. We see we see massive disunity right now politically on this this issue. Um, you, you don't have to watch much of the debates from last night or several weeks ago. Um, is the president racist? Is he not? Is is certain political parties racist fundamentally? Or are they not? Um, so there's and lots can be discussed about how is the how will politically racism be handled? How should churches handle this issue when racism comes up? Um, you know, I think about in 2016 the PCA Presbyterian Church in in America did a report on, on the issue of racial reconciliation. Uh, so I'm curious about your thoughts about what's, what's the right direction forward. You think back to the 60s with the, with, in the early 50, or late 50s in the civil rights movement. Should Presbyterian, uh, Anglican, broader evangelicalism been there to be on the, on the, the door front of, of cultural engagement for racial reconciliation, racial, fixing racial dysfunction? Um, how would you tackle that? Yeah, so I, 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 I want to say that the church, as long as it's been in existence, let's say just the New Covenant Church, it has its own lexicon of reconciliation. Mm. It's called neighbor love, 
confession of sin, forgiveness, uh, image of God, right? James 2 says, why don't we curse humans? We don't curse them because they're made in the likeness and similitude of God. Mm. So we have a lexicon and the church when it, in its birth was, was fighting these kinds of intra, interracial, interracial, Greco, you know, uh, Greeks versus Jewish, right? right. Uh, the, the various different kinds of cultures were struggling to come together from the very in the nascent uh, period of the church. So this is not, I would say, I would set that context to say the 60s with all the racial upheaval, right now with all the, uh, the, the new neo kind of uh, justice concerns uh, with Black Lives Matter and other racial things and police brutality and things like that, there's nothing new for the church. Hmm. Uh, there's been strife as long as there's been humanity. The first, the first murder was interracial, not interracial. It was Cain and Abel, right? So um, I would just say the church needs to be about the business of putting on display what the reconciling power of God looks like. Mm. Confessing our sins one to another, forbearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving our neighbor. Neighbor's not colored. It's not racialized. It's the person in proximity to us, and especially if they're our enemy. So as the church just embodies that, it will be doing what it's supposed to be doing in a, in a time of racial upheaval. So I don't know that there needs to be a special programmatic uh, approach. I mean, we have a lexicon. We have a canonical lexicon. We have theological truths and principles that direct and guide us as this 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 community which is a, a manifest is which is a display of the wisdom of god the manifold wisdom of god in the world by bringing together people who were apart who strangers and aliens and making them brothers and sisters and family and and, and, and all participating in the multinational multi-ethnic family of god and abraham so mm -hmm. as the church just embodies that and does that in its normal practices uh, we will be doing what we're supposed to do. I don't, we don't need to get histrionic in any particular period of time. No, I would say your context will sometimes drive how much you have to concern yourself with it. The churches mm. in the 60s in the Deep South where you had incredibly you know, tense, acrimonious race relations and, and where, you know, the, which was ground zero for civil rights. Of course, a church in that context is, uh, forced um, to address and engage it because it's their day-to-day -day reality, right? Yeah. But it doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't change what the church is called to do. Word, sacrament, preaching of the word, and discipline. The marks don't change because of the context. Let's talk a little bit about that context. You know, I, when, um, the first time I heard about this, uh, a burden of, in reformed circles to be a multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, was about 2005. And a friend of mine went out to plant a church in Virginia. And uh, he said, I, I'm, I'm planting a multi-ethnic, multicultural church in the PCA, and I would like you to move. Uh, this is when I lived in, in, in San Diego. I live now in, in Columbia in South Carolina. So I've come to the, I've come to the South. Um, but he said, I, I want you to move, I want you to consider and prayerfully consider moving out here. And I said, well, why do, you, why do you really want me to come out here? He says, well, one, because you're Jewish. And two, because you've got tattoos all over the place. 
And so I want a device, a diverse, uh, I want that diversity within my church. I thought that's, that's interesting. Um, how much of burden is that um, necessary? It, you know, I think, you know, if a church, if so, someone is called to an area, um, you think that the person is, is, is somebody who is just sent out into the field and whom God brings to the church uh, and saves would becomes a part of that church. Um, is, is that an unnecessary burden to, to say, I have to look, I have to make sure my, my church is multicultural, multi-ethnic when there's only really one kind of culture perhaps in that area. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you put it that way. Yes. That's way too much of a burden. I think it naturalizes a spiritual institution. Mm. Like what's the qualification for a minister or pastor? Paul lays it out, right? He lays out, what, 21 qualities. And he's not being exhaustive, but he's basically telling you, here's what a minister should be. None of them are sociological, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're spiritual uh, graces. Can you, can you lead? Can you teach? Uh, it, do you have self-control, right? You're not, giving, you're not getting drunk. You're, not, you're in control of your appetites. You're, you're knowledgeable. You're able to communicate the word. This doesn't even tell us specifically uh how knowledgeable you are the word but you're able to communicate the knowledge you do have of the word so those qualities are not sociological in the first instance they're 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 spiritual and theological so a church is a, is a ministerial and spiritual institution that we got so we got to be careful if we apply things like quotas and and you know diversity quotients um for leadership but having said that there is an aspect of contextualization. If you're ministering in a place where the language is a tribal language, you're certainly going to want someone who's fluent and, you know, probably born and indigenous to that area to, to be raised up to, to, to minister, right? So it, we should not lead with a contextualization and cultural sociological factors because that's the nature of the church is not as first you know sociological that it, it is a social institution but it's one that's created by christ christ is the head of the church he raises it up he builds it he calls ministers um so i just always want to be careful that uh i'm not concerning myself too much with the the kind of contextualization and imminent issues issues of kind of flesh and blood and society more than spiritual but definitely say and i encourage pastors and i've myself have prayed you know lord it'd be great to to see a diverse group of people raised up in this area as a testimony to your reconciling power and love but that's driven by prayer yeah it's driven you know by prayer and, and and the gospel is the most inclusive contextual <laughs> unifying uh message ever so preach preach the gospel pray and, and let god uh uh, bring about the results. You said that uh, a number of days ago on, on social media, you said the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most racially inclusive, contra-racial supremacist, and anti-CRT message the world has ever known. Yeah. <laughs> Why is CRT, critical race theory, um, an antithesis, if I could put it that way, to the gospel? Well, yeah, so, well, from what I can see of it, and I've just probably for the last year been just trying to get myself a little acquainted with what's going on. It 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 has pre it has materialistic worldly presuppositions. Mm. 
right? It does not proceed from uh, belief in the, the, the triune God over all, who, is, who is the creator of all things and has made us in his image, and we are fallen in Adam, and the only thing that can fix that, the only thing that can make things as they ought to be is, the, is, is redemption that is brought through Jesus Christ, and that all men are sinners in Adam, uh, just as all men are common image bearers. It doesn't proceed from those kinds of basic assumptions about the nature of reality. It, it seems to, you know, it has this kind of dualistic assignment of, you know, oppressor oppressed. And then in our, in our situation in America, it assigns that on the basis of race, right? So mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're white, you're, the, you're naturally an oppressor. It seems. Now, I know people would quibble with all this, but functionally what comes out and practically what comes out is white people are bad, black people are uh, innocent, noble victims. So it's almost Manichaean. It's almost assigning a sort of uh, moral virtue and quality to, to one race and a negative you know, a negative quality to another group, purely on the basis of race or skin color. Mm -hmm. So, what, well, our anthropology says we're all fallen in sin. And oppressors become, the oppressed become oppressors if you give them power. Why is that? Because they have atoms, we have atoms blood coursing through our veins. Mm. Uh, so I think a lot of the presuppositions are wrong. Um, it's, it's negative. It's always positing. Uh, it's suspicious. You know, the critical race theory stuff I've looked at is similar to the critical Bible, higher criticism and, and, and some of the critical Bible uh, theories, if I could put it that way, that I read in seminary. Uh, it, it starts with suspicion and, and doubt and, and it denies supernaturalism and, you know, denies God's it denies tunis, tuism, right? The God is the creator is over the creature, and it, it brings everything down to the level of the creature. The Bible is just a natural book, according to like higher criticism. It's finding contradictions. I find that with critical race theory, it just finds where all the power moves are as it looks at a law or policy or an institution. It just all it sees, it seems, is just what is uh, you know what is suspicious. Who is trying to take advantage of who? And, you know, so there's just all these those faulty presuppositions that that come out the oppressed, the oppressor, that the hegemony, how racism it doesn't it denies basic doctrine of sin, it denies sanctification that we can grow in grace, that people can like not be racist who were, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, it just says racism morphs, it doesn't go away, I guess. So, and I know people quibble every time I've gotten in discussions about this, they'll say, well, that's not every critical theorist or whatever, but. It, you know, it, it, there's enough of a common strain, I think, in some of this. That, so the gospel is on a collision course with that. It says all men are sinners. Mm -hmm. All men need the reconciling power of the gospel to experience it. It doesn't just say certain people are a certain kind of sinners and other people are It's not imminent. It doesn't just deal with material categories here. Mm -hmm. It deals with the reality that we live before God and we, we will have to deal with God. He will judge the world. Uh, and, you know, so it just turns up upside down and disregards all the kind of classic systematic theological categories that we reform folk know, I know. And, and love. I don't want to call out names on this podcast, but I'm thinking of a number of organizations and even ministers who, who you might, I might consider are playing footsies with critical race theory. And you see um, 
nights of repentance or nights of moments of silence? And is that helpful? Is that a move in a, a, a right direction for some of some of these tragic events that we have just seen over the past two years, maybe five years, um, with the with the deaths of certain people? Um, is is that a good gospel? Christ-centered way of moving forward, or is that stepping back into something that we, and getting into something that we don't want to get into? Hmm. Wow. So here's what I want to say. If I may, maybe I'll regret this later. I don't know. <laughs> my first thoughts, and I'm thinking of some of the instances where those things have happened. My, my thought is, first is, yes, it's always good to lament and to acknowledge our sins as an individual, as people, right? That's, we're, we're covenantal. So we believe God, God works in, in groups, right? He works through, 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 his, through his people and, and we're interconnected. We're all part of the body as believers. So it's, it's good to acknowledge uh, sin, to lament it. And that's often a missing aspect. But here's the thing. If we're going to lament sin, we need to lament all of it. Hmm. We, we can't be partial and just lament the sins of white people. Uh, what, you, you, see, again, there's no, we can't constantly just divide the world up into, you know, guilty white people and victimized minorities or people of color or whatever. That's just not how our anthropology works as Christians. So, here, so I say, yes, lament sin, but here's where I have a problem with all these uh, lament sessions and things is it's almost always about a hundred percent what white people have done that's sinful. And it just leaves guiltless people of color. I mean, I know people get upset. We like we're blaming the victim or whatever, but we actually need to lament things, you know, like George Floyd was high. He had to, you know, there's a lot of issues that led up to where he was put in this situation where uh, uh, the, the Minneapolis policeman put his, knee on his neck why do we only talk about what the police do what, what white cops do i guess specifically and not the sins that have bring people into these sad situations like i put a post up about brianna brianna taylor just wanting to highlight something that wasn't being mentioned that it was really sad what happened to her mm. and i don't know everything that happened only the the grand jury and the kentucky attorney general probably and the police that were there no but i said you know Obviously, one of the things that brought her to such a sad demise was the fact that she had this affinity for or was connected with, maybe because of her own lifestyle or whatever it was, these kinds of guys who would put her in dangerous situations, uh. right? And the Proverbs are very clear about a companion of fools being destroyed. But, so I just want to add that. I don't want to just focus on just that. It was really sad what happened. And there's always room for legal reform and police reform and things like that to make uh, situations like this uh, uh, less likely. But back to the lament sessions, I just I have a problem with them, not in principle, but in often how they happen in practice. They seem to just, they seem to implicitly endorse a kind of anthropology that the only sins to be, for which we need to lament mm. are the sins of white people. So that's where I have the problem. So yes, let's lament, let's weep, let's confess, 
let's acknowledge. Um, but let's go, it, it should go all the way down. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be superficial. It shouldn't be Manichaean-like. Uh, so that's where, that's, that's kind of where my thinking is at this point. I always feel left cold a little bit when I've participated in them or watched them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I want to I keep moving forward on, on yeah. that piece um, about response. Uh, but you've mentioned the term Manichaean. Could you explain to our listeners what Manichaean oh. <laughs> I Well, I, you know, I'm probably misusing it. I, I've understood like a Manichaean kind of, uh, I think I read this in Augustine or he was a Manichaean before he was converted. Just this whole assigning a moral quality on the basis of a, of a physical characteristic right. or something, you know, like saying rock beat is sinful, mm-hmm. whereas a, a, a German hymn that, Hymnody is, is is righteous or core, mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing. So it's assigning kind of moral virtue or value uh, on the basis of a physical characteristic or particular kind of use of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it denies the kind of structure direction uh, dynamic that a structure of a thing can be good. How you use it is what what makes it sinful, evil, or or good, righteous. Right. So let's go back then uh, to the moving forward. Certain organizations, they would do nights of lament. What kind of things can, um, besides the preaching of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what, what kind of things can a pastor do? What can lay, lay leaders, ruling elders participate, churches as a whole do to mm-hmm. promote healing? Um, mm-hmm. And even, um, I don't even know how to put it, uh, Growing in, in, into that excitement, I guess, about multicultural, multi-ethnic. You know, when I became a Christian, uh, coming from a Jewish circle, I mean, you know, you think of Jews, you know, I, I've, I've had my fair share of being treated poorly because I was Jewish. But at the same time, Jews have the same, can have the yeah. same racist views towards non-Jews, right? Sure, goy. Sure. You know? Right. We, we see the goy, oh, yeah. there's a goy, you know? Walking to the other side of the of the street, you know? using yeah. the goys on, on, on Shabbat to, to get our stoves to get lit, you know? All these things, right? All because yeah. you know, don't touch me. When I make him a Christian, I was like, are you kidding me? Everyone yeah. is in here? Right. You know, I I can, the women aren't divided on, this, on the same side of the sanctuary. Um, I'm seeing blacks, I'm seeing Mexicans, I'm seeing yeah. this, you know, all this, like, this is wonderful. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. What, what, what way, you know, how can we get excited about the diversity? Because I think of in John's Revelation, chapter yeah, 7, yeah. after yeah. this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, mm-hmm. stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and palms in their hands, and they cry with a loud voice, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, this probably, it seems simplistic, but again, you know, when you really believe in the purpose of the church, in God's economy of redemption in, in, in the world, then I would say when churches do things like when they endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace across cultural lines. So, and, and, and not just like, so I think this is caught, this type of thing is caught more than taught. Uh, I don't want to, we shouldn't treat race like we're in a lecture hall, but more in like a banquet hall thing. 
Hmm. where I think people just need to get together. I think Christians need to gather around the same table, I think. So that practically would look like just Christians that are different, that have different ways of looking at the world. And every time I look at a Barna study on politics and Christianity and how the racists seem so disparate in their views, I just always think more and more, man, it would be just good to just get together, sit down, and just have real live koinonia. Hmm. So this is not – because race, especially for minorities – and African-Americans, it's not primarily an epistemological issue. It's an ethical existential issue that, you know, we live it, we feel it. We, we feel the kind of biculturalism of living in America as a minority group. I'm sure you understand that, Joshua. Um, so I think practically, I think practical, ethical things, getting together face-to-face, sitting down, sharing meals together, partnering in the gospel, Doing those kinds of basic ecclesiastical acts of love and, and, and unity, and I think that can help form the kinds of uh, epistemological unity, kinds of theological alignment that comes from first pra- in, in, in practicing it. Right? You mentioned Revelation. It's you know, it's every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue gathered around the throne singing. There's proximity there. So I think just practically speaking, churches need to get together and do things more, more than just kind of doing, you know, podcast debates and, you know, and even just conferences, but, but spending time together, uh, breaking bread together, sitting across the table, partnering in ministry, you know, things like joint services. I think all this, all this kinds of church, church unity is local. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a global thing. It's like, we can't unite the church, but I can unite with my Christian neighbor who who lives across the street or whose church is just down the street from my own. So I, I see things like that, little relational uh, matters that make it more than just epistemological debates and it brings it down into the ethical and the praxis, not just orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. Last last question. That's very, very, very helpful and also very encouraging. I, I, I picture all that and then about banqueting and, and the beauty of that. Let's say you're a small church pastor or even a large church pastor and you're wanting to do that type of thing of, of local unity and the the brother the church across the street though embraces critical race theory or embraces maybe a, a narrative that you you feel is somewhat twisted what's the way um to walk in love and to to be able to get that banquet table set up for fellowship is it simply just um biting your lip and just sit and, and keep having conversations. You know, I always wonder about, I've always heard the importance of conversations, but at some point there's going to come, there's going to come a budding of right. heads. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, but that's always a starting point, right? You have to like open your mouth to the other person and they have to talk back to you. And then as you gain a little bit of credibility, obviously you can speak more directly as you are more comfortable as you kind of build up that, uh, good faith capital with one another. Uh, you can speak more truthfully. So I would, you know, when I, I have serious disagreements with a number of people on CRT and, and it's just, it's anti- and how it's antithetical to the gospel. Um, and I have on a number of occasions just tried to talk, talk with them. Um, but if they don't want to talk, I mean, I guess you can retreat and 
try to come back at a later point and see if they can make some advance. But yeah, I, I mean, I just don't know that there's any magic formula or anything you know, beyond God has made us embodied beings and has called us to love one another and to dwell with one another and, and peace and unity. And, and a lot of times that, that requires speaking some hard truths in order for us to grow together and be built up. And I just, it's, it's just a messy, you know, it's, I'm reminded of Paul Tripp's book, you know, relationships are mess worth making. So it's, this is a mess worth making is to really just try to talk to people across the, across the ideological aisle. I don't know any other way to really pray for unity to really, and to pursue it in very practical, one-to-one, church-to-church kinds of ways. Very helpful. Pastor Mark, thank you for being on the program today. My privilege. This concludes our episode of the Truth Exchange Podcast, a program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. Be sure to drop us a line, let us know how you think we're doing, or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.